Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. We are currently discussing the SANS Top 20 Security Controls. SANS Institute is an acronym for System Administration Network and Security Institute. They are a giant think tank of all things information network, uh, various types of security. They started with trade shows, then they started with training, and then they came up with the Global Information Assurance Certificate Program, which is GIAC. I myself have the GIAC System and Network Auditor GSNA certification. The SANS Top 20 Critical Security Controls for Effective Cyber Defense was put together based upon what was deemed a serious problem by the federal government in 2008. They basically put together a framework that was complementary to the government framework so that private industry and government could ultimately work together to determine what the biggest problems in security are and provide an open framework that anyone could access to actually implement a better security program. It was transferred to the Council on Cybersecurity in 2013, which is an independent global nonprofit entity committed to a secure and open internet. They focus on prioritizing security functions against the latest threats, basing everything on what works in terms of products, processes, architectures, and services. Top priorities are standardization and automation. It is very complementary to the government's National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, Special Publication 853, which is the guiding light of all things government information security. I will post a link to this in the podcast page. They do not replace the NIST, but they work very well together. Now let's move on to the next four controls. Control number five is malware defenses. Broadly speaking, this is antivirus. To go through the sub-controls within SANS Critical Security, control number five, 5-1 is employee automated tools to continuously monitor workstations, servers, and mobile devices with antivirus, anti-spyware, personal firewalls, and host-based intrusion prevention system functionality. All malware detection events should be sent to enterprise anti-malware administration tools and event log servers. Simply put, most antivirus also has anti-spyware software built in. Many, such as McAfee, have personal firewalls and host-based intrusion prevention system functionality. For some of your cheaper antiviruses or even free ones, you may need to download another firewall if you don't want to use Windows Firewall or in Linux IP tables. Komodo is a very good choice. Advanced Persistent Security can help you with this because within our security product we are working on, we are integrating a free open source antivirus and we are also aggregating log data so that you can satisfy the event log servers and the anti-malware tools portion of this control. Next, you employ anti-malware software that offers a remote cloud-based centralized infrastructure that compiles the information on file reputations and administrators push the updates to the machines and verify that it's received the update. Most antiviruses 
do this automatically. It's the definition update. The centralized server is kind of optional depending on the size of the organization. If you have an organization of six people, you probably don't need the centralized infrastructure. But if you have an organization of 100 or 600, then you probably do. We can help you write a policy and select software or a solution to actually solve the problem if you're having it and you need to meet it. Next, configure laptops, workstations, and servers so that they will not auto-run content from removable media such as USB, thumb drives, external hard drive, CD, DVD, mobile devices. If it plugs in, it falls under this umbrella. You can solve this with software in some cases. In other cases, you actually have to make configuration changes to your operating system. Next, configure systems so that they automatically conduct an anti-malware scan of removable media when inserted. This is something that you must configure in your antivirus rule set. We can obviously help you with this type of configuration. Next, scan and block all email attachments if they contain malicious code or they are unnecessary to the organization's business based on file type. Should be done before it reaches the inbox email content filtering, and web content filtering. This gets a little bit stickier because then you're actually having to deal with your mail server. If you're a small organization and using something like Gmail, then it's almost impossible, but it can be met. If you're using Exchange internally, then you can use specialized antivirus for that server, like McAfee's MSME. Next, you enable anti-exploitation features such as data execution prevention, address space layout randomization, DEP and ASLR, virtualization, containerization, etc. You can also, if you're using Windows 8 or Server 2012 and later, you can use the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit that also adds a certain layer of security with it as well. Next, limit the use of external devices to those that have a business need. Monitor for use and attempted use of external devices. This is very, very, very simple. You can define this in your policy. We can certainly help you with that. But what you're worrying about is the fact that someone uses their personal device, their personal PC that you have no administrative control over They are checking their email with their personal device that yet again, you have no administrative control over it. You cannot cannot run updates on these machines. You cannot enforce an antivirus upon these machines, but you can containerize it using solutions such as Good Mobile. The next one, ensure that automated monitoring tools use behavior-based anomaly detection to complement traditional signature-based detection. In most cases, most antiviruses today do both signature and behavior-based. Most antiviruses have it, so this control will kind of go away. Next, number 5-9. Use network-based anti-malware tools to identify executables in all network traffic and use techniques other than signature-based detection to identify and filter out malicious content. This is something that has to be done at your intrusion detection system, your IDS or your IPS if you have it set for prevention, your firewall, somewhere so that you can find it over the wire. We can help configure your intrusion detection and prevention systems to meet this requirement. Next, implement an incident response process that allows IT support to supply the security team with samples of malware that do not appear to be recognized by the anti-malware software. This is very advanced. If you're just starting out, this should be kind of down the road. Finally, Enable DNS query logging to detect hostname lookup for malicious domains. This again is also very advanced. 
but you should definitely be getting logs for every activity on your DNS server. We can ensure that you have a policy to collect that type of information. And whenever our security product makes it to market, it will also be able to extract the syslog data and make sense of it as well. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will be discussing application software security. Sit tight. Next, we are talking about application software security. This will deal with the applications you build in-house and software you purchase and deploy in-house. Kicking it off with a new control, 6-1. For all application software, ensure that the version you're using is supported by the vendor. If not, update. Install all relevant patches and vendor security recommendations. With this, we can help you via creating a policy with regards to how you update your software, when you update your software, and how you assess this. Generally speaking, though, if you stay with the most current operating system with automatic updates on and conduct vulnerability scanning as you are supposed to and as was defined in critical security control number four, you will see it and then you can rapidly update it. Software like Chrome and Firefox do not necessarily have a defined update and patch schedule, whereas software like Java, and Adobe to include Creative Cloud, Air, Flash, Shockwave, and Reader do. With this, what you're going to want to do is know that schedule, conduct your scans, find it, and then already have a plan in place that entails how you're going to update it, when, etc. Next, protect web applications by deploying web application firewalls, WAFs, that inspect all traffic to the web application and these will include cross-site scripting, SQL injection, command injection, and directory traversal. If they are not web-based, then you should have specific application firewalls to be deployed for those tools are available for the application type. Next, for in-house developed software, ensure that explicit error checking is performed and documented for all inputs including the size, data type, and acceptable ranges or format. Next, you should test in-house data developed in third-party procured web applications for security weaknesses using automated web application scanners, such as Acunetics, before you deploy them, and then whenever you make updates to the application, and then again on a recurring basis, weekly, monthly, quarterly. That's probably about the longest I would wait. You should include tests for denial of service, resource exhaustion, code injection, etc. Next, you should not display system error messages to end users. This will give them too much information if they are an attacker that they could use against you. Uh, for example, if you give an Apache error, now they know that they are working with Apache. You have eliminated Engine X, you have eliminated IIS, they know they are after Apache. That makes life a lot easier for them. And the goal of security is to make life as hard as possible for the malicious hackers trying to break into systems. Next, maintain separate environments for production and non-production. Developers should not have unmonitored access to production environments. No one should have unmonitored access to production environments. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the janitor. Everyone should be monitored. Next, test in-house developed web and other application software for coding errors 
and potential vulnerabilities prior to deployment using automated static code analysis software, manual testing and inspection, and then the good old fashioned human code review. Input validation and output encoding routines of application software should be reviewed and tested. Next, this is another new one for acquired application software. Examine the security process of the product and the vendor in terms of history of vulnerabilities, customer notification, patching, remediation, and everything within that ballpark. You don't want to buy a product from someone that has a lot of vulnerabilities, that doesn't notify their customers, that doesn't respond to it, etc. Next, for applications that rely on a database, use standard hardening configuration templates. You should also test all systems that are part of critical business processes. Next, you should ensure that all software development personnel receive training in writing secure code for their environment. And finally, for in-house developed applications, ensure that the artifacts, sample data, scripts, unused libraries, debug code tools are not included in the deployed software or accessible in the production environment. Advanced persistent security can help you with this cumulatively, not so much with code reviews, but with at least making sure that you have the, the policies and the procedures in place to ensure this happens and making sure that principle of least privilege with the developers and everyone else is in place so that you don't have to worry about a developer maintaining code changes in production when they should only have access to the test environment. We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss wireless access control. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. Thank you for sticking around. We're going to discuss wireless access control. This is vital because it's a way that you can keep your employees from connecting unauthorized cell phones and other mobile devices to your network. And it also keeps malicious hackers from using your resources to perpetrate attacks and make it look like it was you. First, Ensure that each wireless device connected to the network matches an authorized configuration and security profile. This goes back to the baselining is addressed in critical control number three. Furthermore, organizations should deny access to those that do not have the configuration and profile. Next, configure network vulnerability scanning tools to detect wireless access points and you should make sure that they are legitimate. They are not rogue access points. They are not what is called evil twins. If they are, you eliminate them. Next. Use wireless intrusion detection systems to identify rogue wireless access devices and detect attack attempts and successful compromises. All wireless traffic should be monitored. There is a specific business need in some cases for wireless access. You should configure wireless access on client machines to allow access only to authorized networks, meaning if you don't want malware on your machine, you may want to make sure that only your company's Wi-Fi and their home Wi-Fi, if allowed to take it home and telework, is authorized. You don't want employees taking their machines to places like Starbucks, McDonald's, Panera Bread, so forth and so on, because there's no IT department sitting there watching it at all times, and sometimes it's not even configured correctly, and an attacker could be sitting there just waiting for people to do that so that they could perpetrate other attacks like the man in the middle session hijacking, etc. For devices that do not have an essential wireless business purpose, disable it. Quite honestly, disable it. 
and you also password protect it so that you don't have to worry about the user overriding those configurations. You should ensure that all wireless traffic is encrypted and you're using WPA2 with AES, Advanced Encryption Standard. Next, you should ensure that your wireless networks use authentication protocols such as Extensible Authentication Protocol slash Transport Layer Security, EAP slash TLS that provides credential protection and mutual authentication. You should disable peer-to-peer -peer wireless network capabilities on wireless clients unless you have to have it for a documented and approved business need. You should disable wireless peripheral access of devices such as Bluetooth, unless it's, again, required, documented, and approved. Finally, you should create separate virtual LANs, VLANs, for bring your own systems or other untrusted devices such as a guest network and internet access from that VLAN should go through the same border as all the other traffic, but it should be treated as untrusted and filtered and audited and highly scrutinized. Advanced Persistent Security can help you with this. As always, in creating a policy for this, we can help you implement your wireless security system and ensure that it meets all requirements for whatever regulatory compliance you are trying to meet. We're going to take our final break and then we will come back and discuss another quick topic, data recovery capability. Sit tight. See you in a few. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADV Persistent SEC and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash advancedpersistentsecurity. Thanks for sticking around. We are covering data recovery capability, and then we will be done for controls number one through eight, specifically five through eight in this podcast. First, ensure that each system is automatically backed up at least weekly, more often if the system stores sensitive information. The operating system, application software, and the data machine should be included in the backup. They don't have to be in the same backup or even use the same software. They just need to be backed up at least weekly. That way, if you have a malware infection, you can restore back and you're losing a maximum of one week of data. All backup policies should be compliant with any regulatory or official requirements. You should periodically test the data on the backup media just by performing a data restoration to ensure that the backup is properly working. You should ensure that backups are properly protected via physical security or encryption when they're stored, as well as when they're moved across the network, including remote backup and cloud services. Finally, this is a new one, you should ensure that key systems have at least one backup destination that is not continuously addressable through operating system calls that mitigates the risk of attacks that seek to encrypt or damage data in all addressable data shares, including backup destinations. That's every bit of control number eight. Advanced Persistent Security can help you with a backup policy, but we can also help you come up with your disaster recovery and business continuity. Some people call it contingency plans or continuity of operation plans. We can help you out with this so that you understand how much downtime you can have and leave no stone unturned in being able to make sure that your business is able to succeed and hopefully operate smoothly through an entire disaster but if not, you're able to get on your feet quickly. That's it for this week. Next week, we will be continuing this series. We will be, con we will be covering controls number 9 through 12 to include security skills assessment and appropriate training to fill gaps, secure configurations for network devices such as firewalls, routers, and switches, 
limitation and control of network ports, protocols, and services, and control use of administrative privileges. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.